0: So this morning, the risk of God's mission. Was there some risk involved when Jesus came? We're going to come back to that. I don't know if you've seen John MacArthur in the news. He's 81 years of age. He's the pastor of the Grace Community Church out in California. It's a non-denominational evangelical megachurch. And he was catapulted in a larger way into the news when he did not abide by the California state orders set in mid-July of this year, 2020, for indoor activities to be banned. And he decided, we're going to keep worshiping. We're going to keep our doors open. Even though the order was, no, you can only have 25% of capacity because of the COVID-19 pandemic. He and his church found themselves in court four different occasions, to my count, over fines and lawsuits in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yet each time, the California courts upheld their right to meet in person. After four losses in court, the L.A. County tried a new approach to terminate the parking lot lease that they had leased from the county for 45 years. Folks, we find ourselves in an age where there is a major push to consent to certain ideas. And the tactic often used is, if we don't get our way, we'll make you pay. Friends, secular humanism continues to march forward. Back when I was in school and we talked about the end time scenario, about standing up for our faith at end times, I never would have guessed it might be over my refusal to marry two men. I never would have dreamed that it might involve refusing someone confused about their gender the right to use any bathroom they so chose. And friends, the rise of secular humanism will not, is not stopping with allowance, if you have not noticed. And now we're living in a world where everything has been turned upside down on its head. Wrong is seen as right, and right is seen and portrayed as wrong. And so this man, John MacArthur, in his 80s, not afraid to say it like it is, And as a result, the mainstream media, to put it lightly, does not like him. He did an interview just before Thanksgiving where he claimed America is in a moral freefall. And you might say, well, come on, pastor, that's a little bit dramatic, isn't it? In the interview, it came on the heels of the state of California allowing strip clubs to reopen while churches were still fighting to reopen. And so he said it this way in his own words, quote, you murder the babies in the womb. If they survive the womb, you try and seduce them into transgender sexual deviation when they're young. If they survive that, you corrupt them with godless education. If they survive that, then you have divorce in the family. And if they grow to be adults, you drown them in a sea of pornography. So I ask again, is America in a moral free fall? Have we just become so used to things that we say, well, that's the way it is. Now, America is a great country founded on great principles. But if you think that we're not on the cusp of a crisis, I believe you need to think again. In many of the secular colleges today, it is a more grievous sin for me to tell someone they're doing wrong than for me to practice wrong. Is it true? Have you read about the Great Reset? I don't have time to launch into this, but the subheading of the article, this is Time Magazine, November 2 of this year. The COVID-19 pandemic has provided a unique opportunity to think about the kind of future we want. To share ideas of how to transform the way we live and work. Now, this is talking about in reference to transforming how we lived and worked before the pandemic, is it not? Major backers have said of this great reset, a better economy is possible, but we need to reimagine capitalism to do it. Does that make anybody else nervous in here besides me? To reimagine capitalism? You dig a little deeper and their goal is that by 2030, this 10 years, not even 10 years, about 9 years away, that we won't own anything. Folks, this is socialism. The Ten Commandments mentioned this morning talk about how we should not covet our neighbor's house. It doesn't say our neighbor shouldn't have a house. Bible says that if you don't work, you don't eat. Now, I understand we need to measure that with taking care of widows and orphans, but that's a far cry away from just reimagining capitalism. So in the ebb and flow of our culture, in a time where riots last for over three months straight, and the news outlets justify them, well, it's just built up hostility. I can't help myself. I just have to break windows, burn things, and take what I want. I saw on the news, maybe I mentioned this before, a guy saying, I'm not sure it has so much to do with writing and them being upset as they just want a new pair of Nikes. Because that's what they're taking out of my store. They've cleaned it out. And how does that fix the problem that they feel that they're in? And more specifically as it relates to the coronavirus, what is God calling us Seventh-day Adventists to do and to be at this time? Have you asked yourself that question? How are we to exercise our faith? What is our obligation to the lost, to those questioning? In a world gripped with fear over this COVID crisis, for the fear of some that this COVID crisis will result in an economic crisis, and some are even going as far as to say the economic crisis will have us forget entirely the COVID crisis. Friends, our world is trembling and asking questions. The interest in Bible prophecy is the highest now than it's been in a generation. Did you know that Google searches for the second coming spike to the highest level ever this year? The world is crying out. What an opportunity before us as a people. What an opportunity for the remnant people of God to rise and shine. But instead of recognizing the golden moment before us, many of our people are just as frightened as the godless people down the street. And yet there are people watching and waiting, but instead we have empty churches. Did you know that in this conference we still have churches that have yet to reopen? And I get correspondence from some individuals at the conference office with messages to the pastor saying, and if you have not reopened, don't. I get discouraged when I hear that. I get messages that say, for the camp meeting, we're going to live stream. We want you to save the date and show it so everyone can see it because camp meeting has been canceled in person. It's all virtual. And so for those churches that are open... I think it's the first week of June, last of May, one of the two. For those that are open, save the date. For those that are open? Here are pictures after we closed. Our first live stream only service was March 21. A week later than many around us. And so here are some pictures I took of our church empty during the 10 weeks that we just live streamed. And let me tell you, because you weren't here, let me tell you, it was depressing to be on Sabbath morning in an empty, lifeless church, a quiet church, and to put a smile on my face each Sabbath and welcome everybody through this camera that I kept forgetting was even there. I was talking to the one or two people that were here. And yes, I'm thankful for that ability that we could live stream. There's no question. We're all thankful for that. But for me, there was something deeply troubling about the whole thing. So one Sabbath, I walk around. Empty Sabbath school classes. Where are the kids? I'm glad I came to Sabbath school. I mean, it's just definitely quiet. Where's the young adults? Where's the primaries, the juniors, the youth? And finally, on May 30, we opened back up in person. And if you remember, we still had the panel up here. We weren't doing this Sabbath school thing. It was just open for church. And so we were getting done with this Sabbath school portion. And I remember coming down and getting ready to to do church. And then the doors opened in the back. These double doors. And it got me. Choked me up. I had to take a picture Here are the saints finally able to come back to church after 10 weeks. And some churches are still not open. At this time in Earth's history, shelter in place. Yes, we're taking precautions. We have several doctors in this church. And I've leaned on them many times. We social distance. We're social distance now. We wear masks as we come in, as we go out, as we're in the hallways, in the restrooms. We have disinfectant readily available. We remind people to wash their hands as if you haven't heard that a million times. We're not having potlucks or social events, which I miss. We're not shaking hands, but we are coming together to worship our God. We are having Sabbath school classes together. And in case you didn't notice, I as a leader felt like this church was revived, not just with church services, but when we started Sabbath school, something changed. Did you notice that too? We're singing in our worship service. We're trusting everyone to make a good decision in regards to their level of attendance. And we recognize that this is a voluntary place of worship. We have a direct feed to our fellowship hall downstairs that want a little bit more social distancing, and that's fine. We've discussed as a body of elders if we should make changes or adjustments, but the counsel has been to stay consistent. And so that's what we've done. And by God's grace, I'm not aware of one transmission from church. Praise the Lord. Is that saying that will never change? No, I'm not making that promise. But I'm thankful that this much time has passed. And here we are. We feel people can manage their own lives and willingly entertain the risks with this form of gathering. And we've gotten some feedback for that. Not a lot, but some have been disappointed in our response. I imagine either way we go, someone's going to be disappointed with our response. And I know some at our conference office Would view what we are doing as reckless. Others might even refer to us as rebels. Now, I don't feel that we are rebels, I feel that we are leaders. Is there a risk of dying of COVID? Yes, there is. What is that risk? I called Dr. Bailey. It was a little bit higher before. We were knowing better how to treat it. He even shared with me that the same cocktail that our president got is now available at the one hospital, Advent Health, in Western North Carolina. So they're getting better at treating it. So now, what is that risk? 0.9% that you could die of COVID. Is it higher for those that are older? Yes. Is it more dangerous for those with a compromised immune system? Yes, but all the way across the board, the average, 0.9%. That's one in a hundred. But the average American has a one in six chance. I just said one in a hundred. One in six chance of dying of heart disease. Largely preventable. But are we calling that a pandemic? We don't see for the global reset of the fast food industry, do we? (laughs) Death from cancer is one in seven. How about chronic lower respiratory disease? One in 26. You know, it's funny how in 2020, almost no one is dying of lower respiratory disease anymore. Almost everyone is dying from, or nobody's almost dying from heart disease. Why? Because COVID is put down for the reason of death for just about everybody today. One in eighty-six chance of dying of suicide in the United States in 2018. One in eighty-six. But you have places like Fresno, California that's reported suicides in June were up 70% over last year. Why? Because you have to just isolate, 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 be on your own, survive, get by. How about this one? Motor vehicle crash. Chance of death. One in a hundred and six. Now, if you do the math, I find it very interesting that that is 0.9%. Exactly the risk of dying of COVID. Falling, it happens, has a chance of death of 1 in 111. It rounds up to still 0.9%. So forget masks. You can't go to the grocery store anymore or hardware store or hospital if you don't have your walker. Public transit is much safer, so nobody can come to church unless they have come with public transit. Why? We can't afford to take the risk. They're giggling. How old are you, Charlotte? Ten. Ten. She gets it. Walkers in public transport. Another thing that concerns me, People doing all kinds of things on the weekends that are violating what I would call intellectual consistency. In other words, they're being logically hypocritical. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, they won't come to church because they somehow think this is irresponsible. But they'll sit next to each other on their boats in the summer. They have pizza parties with each other. They'll give each other hugs. They're going camping and going to all kinds of other places. But when they gather to create a sense of what the church's mission is, what Christian fellowship should look like, those are the topics of hyper-caution. Do you see what I'm talking about or am I just making this up? So what is intellectual inconsistency? When you don't go to church because that's not safe, but you'll do almost anything else with those you feel are safe. And the result, we have hundreds if not thousands of churches across the country that are not even open on any given weekend. Much less the seventh day, the day of worship. As we as Seventh-day Adventists believe, the Bible declares that to be an eternal covenant connecting us to creation and redemption. Yet 0.9% risk is enough to keep us away I want to know, if your kids are going to school, why aren't they going to Sabbath school? I guess I'm preaching to the choir here. I want to know, if you're going to work, how come you're not going to church? I want to know, God wants to know, because when your work is closed, the mission of the church will still be going forward. Because when our schools are closed and they are not allowed to instruct our children, there will still be admonition and instruction in God's holy word. There will still be the gathering for prayer and to encourage one another for the work that is before us. And if we're not careful as Christians, we can lose our credibility and our witness When we no longer are attending religious services, but we meet up for a pizza party or go boating or camping, when somehow they observe that really the only things that are truly essential and necessary are those things that relate to our own self interest. Friends, I fail to see where the Bible promises us a risk free existence as Christians. You remember the story of David and Goliath? How can you forget the story of David and Goliath? David sent by his father to check on his older brothers who are old enough to be in the battle. And Goliath comes day after day and taunts them and speaks blasphemy. And in 1 Samuel 17, 26, David finally speaks up. This ruddy youth describes him. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And he goes before King Saul and says, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hands of this Philistine. Is David willing to take some risks for God? Absolutely he's willing. And what you see here is that over time, David has built up some spiritual muscle, right? The paw of the lion And the paw of the bear, God was with me during those times. Are those times of happy-go-lucky, joy-filled, skipping through the the pansies' days? No! Those are times of crisis. There's a huge animal with big teeth trying to take the sheep. But he built faith in his Lord and his God. And I think God put those challenges in David's path to prepare him For the giant. Just like I think God puts challenges in our path to prepare us for the end time scenario. And it's not so much down there as it is right here. I have no question that the challenge that we're facing personally in our family is to prepare us for something that God has in store for us down the line. He's trying to build spiritual muscle. And so he goes before the giant with a bit of risk, a bit more than 0.9%. And he says, you come to me with sword and with spear, and with javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you and take your head from you that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Risk involved, absolutely. Did David understand the risk? Yes. But what is the difference about David? What sets him apart from the whole army of Israel? What sets him apart from King Saul? Because as a follower of the true God, he has a different mission, a different mandate, and a different sense of security, not in the ways of man, but in Christ and eternity. And when we see things from a different perspective... We act and we respond in different ways. Ways that people say, how come you're not afraid? I mean, you look at the secular world out there. They're all concerned about the first death, the first death, the first death. As Christians, it's not about the first death. It's about the second death. And Jesus delivered us from the second death. He's promised the ultimate victory to us. And so we don't have to fear like the rest of the world fears. We have hope like the rest of the world doesn't have hope. We don't mourn like the rest of the world mourns. Why? Because we have a different mindset, a different mission, and a different purpose. And we can rest in the assurance of Jesus Christ. How about the three Hebrews in Daniel 3? You know this story well too. King Nebuchadnezzar gets the dream. I'm going to make some corrections to it the whole thing is going to be gold we're going to bring all the who's who of society they're going to all have to kneel down and bow and worship this image with the dimensions of 60 and 6 and it's repeated throughout the chapter multiple times that he set up that he set up that he set up and when he gets to report that three hebrews do not bow down he calls them in and he's furious and he gives them a tongue lashing but amazingly he decides i'm going to give you another chance And he says in verse 15, if you do not worship, what was the issue? Worship. You shall be cast immediately in the midst of the burning furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Says Nebuchadnezzar. The issue was worship. What I set up, don't mess with me. But I love their response. The next verse, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Was there risk? Are you kidding? And why do they respond that way? Because as followers of the true God, they have a different mission, a different mandate, and a different sense of security, not in the ways of man, but in Christ and eternity. Go a few more chapters, the decree was made to catch Daniel. You remember this story too, Daniel chapter six. And so they they get in the back room, they figure out how they're gonna do it, and how they're gonna manipulate, they get the law passed, and then, It tells us in verse 10, now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home and quarantined himself. He sheltered. No, he went home and in his upper room with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God. As was his custom since early days, it says. Did he know the risk? The verse tells us. He knew the writing had been signed. But this was Daniel's response. And again, I think it's rooted in the fact that he had a different mission, a different mandate, and a different sense of security than the rest of society. Oh, Pastor, you're saying if we come to church by faith, we won't get sick. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying this first life doesn't matter. It's the second life that matters. That's what's essential. Friends, I could go on and on. We could talk about John the Baptist and his straightforward talk to King Herod and the great risk to himself. We could talk about the disciples of Jesus. All died a martyr's death except one. They tried to kill him in a pot of boiling oil, but God intervened. And so they sent him to the Isle of Patmos. We could talk about Stephen before the Sanhedrin at great risk to himself. We could talk about Paul and the multiple times they tried to kill him and eventually they succeeded. Friends, where is it? Where is it that God calls us to a risk-free, comfortable, happy-go-lucky life on this earth? Where does it say that if you follow me, you will have a pain-free existence? Where do we read that the churches go into hibernation mode when there is risk? No rather, I submit to you that God's people have always understood the risk of God's mission. Does anybody here know anyone that has come out of a communist country? They know what it's like to live under that? And let me just ask you, based on their experience living through that, are they more grounded in their faith or less? more crisis has a way of grounding us in christ in ways that just happy-go-lucky does not i mean wasn't it jesus that said don't think i come to bring peace but a sword didn't he say that enemies would be ones of our own family In fact, in some of the first words, when beginning his ministry, the Sermon on the Mount begins in Matthew chapter 5 and onward. Only a few lines in, and he begins to warn us. And what does he say? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right out of the gate. This isn't a bait and switch. But he goes on, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. You're blessed. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward on earth in heaven. We have a different mindset. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You feel, oh, I'm the only one. No, you're not. And you won't be the last. And so how is it that the majority think it's okay to talk caution stewardship when the world needs to see a group of people saying, you know what? We're gonna be good stewards of public health. We're just not gonna do it quite like you. Because at the center of our life is a God who's given us courage and faith and love. And we just really must Worship. Because we have a mission. We have a mandate to fulfill for Christ. And so we want to do all that we can to minimize the risk without minimizing the mission. I'm all for virtual, but virtual has its limitations. Some things have to be personal. It's been a while now, I think five years ago, if I have it right, in the spring of 2015. My family started sending around these group texts. "Hey, there's this seven bridges half marathon in, in Chattanooga, and you can do a marathon or you can do a 5K or whatever or 10K, but we're all going to try and go in together and do the half marathon!" Oh no! Really? And my wife starts chiming, "Oh, you should do it. It'd be a fun thing to do with your family.) <sighs> So I finally took the plunge. I put the dates on my calendar. I paid this money online. My life changed. Because now there's this thing. It's a big thing. What is it, 13.2? Small, 0.1? Thanks, Dan. He does it for fun. Like real ones, big ones, the full, full thing. This is a half. But I start running. Elizabeth's trying you really need to start I know okay I'll get out there and so I'm running and I'm running and I'm running this is getting boring I'm just running like a Sunday comes and I spend like three four hours running what is this this is called training because at the age that I was probably most any age not quite I've known people that just you know they decide the night before and run a marathon and anyway I have words for those kind of people But if you want to finish the race, there's some training involved. And so just from a very simplistic point, I don't have to even describe this, but you start out with a few laps and you end up you know, uh, uh, and You're dying and you're trying to fake it. You know, A car's coming by and, oh, let's run. Okay, now time to walk. Uh, uh. And you do it more and you do it more and you go further and longer and faster and you you have all these apps that help you on where you're supposed to be and by this point you should be doing this and you should be doing that to where you're hoping that the time comes that you're ready. And so the day came, I don't know if I'm ready, I don't know if I'm ready. And, And for whatever reason, dad and I were about the same level. Never mind that he's like way older than me. But that's okay. He runs all the time, whatever. And so we're running, and we're running, and we're running through this half marathon. And you go through all these mental, you know, why am I doing this? And what's going to happen to me? I'm going to injure my knees and all this other stuff. and, And why don't I stop? And I can't stop. It was after the fact that dad said, and we did relatively well. I don't remember the time. I just remember it was better than I thought I would. And he says, yeah, man, Dave was smoking out there. I was just trying to keep up with him. I said, what are you talking about? I was just trying to keep up with you but we finished the race together. Doesn't it seem logical that if we're going to go through times of crisis that we as Adventists know are coming, doesn't it stand to reason that God would place us in situations to prepare us for that time that is coming to grow our faith, to run another lap, to go a little bit longer, to go a little bit further? And how beautiful that our Heavenly Father is running there with us. As Christians, we're on a preparatory journey. It's what we do as parents, isn't it? Try and prepare our young people. They don't just get born and then we kick them out. That's what we do as educators. Train them up. I remember thinking, man, how am I ever going to do the whole you know, high school thing? And how am I going to do the college thing? Well, you're prepared step by step by step by step. I mean, I had a, a brother two years older. Oh, that's easy stuff. Well, In fourth grade, we're doing this. And then I finally get there. Do I get any credit? No. Oh, that's easy. In sixth grade, we're doing this. But you prepare, and when you get there, you're ready. And if we think that we're just going to roll out of bed one morning and face the Sunday law crisis as we yawn, as our hair is disheveled, as we're rubbing sleepies out of our eye, I think we're a bit naive, don't you think? No, we need to learn to trust in Jesus and allow him to change our worldview so we can make it through to the end. Because the world is responding from a secular worldview that doesn't have a mission. They don't have a mandate from God. They don't have a greater security in Christ. Or we could say maybe in anything. That's why they're searching. That's why they're Googling. Because they might have a huge fat bank account, but they're not trusting that now either. They have no sense of eternity. There's no sense or or understanding of the first death or second death. They don't approach life with the understanding of Jesus, who said, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear Him, who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Folks, there's something worse than death in this life. Some of you watching online this morning may be getting really uncomfortable right now, and you may be saying to yourself, "Pastor, you're just not taking this pandemic seriously." Over two hundred and seventy-five thousand people have died in this country this year of COVID. To which I would respectfully respond. You are not taking this pandemic seriously. Of the 275,000 people that have died, how many have had the peace and assurance of Jesus Christ? While we shelter down for fear of losing and tasting the first death, when someone else is dying and losing both the first and the second how many need someone to come and give them the good news before they catch COVID and their fate is sealed? But rather than being on the front lines, the church by and large is in hibernation mode all across this land. And I have news for you. COVID-19 will not keep anyone out of heaven. Did you know that? It will not close the doors to the celestial city to anyone. But there's another global pandemic. This virus has infected every member of the human family and the kill rate is 100%. Not only that, but the virus that we know as sin. There's a vaccine. His name is Jesus. Amen. And that vaccine will keep you not out of heaven, it will let you go to heaven. And could it be that God raised up this church for such a time as this? If this is the golden opportunity, let's not miss it. And so I'm proud to be able to say that in 2020, the year of canceled, we have not just done one, but two full evangelistic series. First with Pastor Hyman in the spring, then with Doug Batchelor Revelation Now this fall. We're even planning for the next one. And people are watching. People are making decisions. Is it what I would like it to be? No. But are we just going to sit on the sidelines and wait for normal to come back? No. So, yes, in the time of COVID, there is a risk. There's always been a risk. But I feel to shut down our churches, to shut down ministry, to go into hibernation is a bigger risk to ourselves and to our community. And I don't expect the world to understand that. So, let's face it to be a Christian has always come with risk. But we have an eternal point of view, an eternal perspective. This is a meme. Do you know what a meme is? They send it on texts or whatever. It says this, this is, I don't know if they're drafting the the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, all the above, I don't know. But you get the idea. It says, just to be clear, none of this matters if there's a virus. I don't know exactly what they're referring to. Uh All men are created equal under God, have the right to worship, and so on and so forth. Unless there's a virus and then it's canceled. Could we just superimpose that? to this slide to be clear none of this matters if there's a virus three angels message canceled evangelistic efforts canceled in fact it broke my heart when as our conference we said if you have evangelistic efforts they're all canceled ours was already far enough in and we'd already put money in they said okay But everything else in general, canceled. How about, let's reinvent. I know you already sent in your plans. Make new plans and send them in. As Christians, as the remnant church of Bible prophecy, I believe we should respond differently than the rest of the world because we have a mission. Share the everlasting gospel of the world. We have a mandate, go into all the world making disciples, teaching them everything I've commanded. And we have a different sense of security. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That includes now. John 14, 27. Thank you, Sidney, for reading this to us. Peace I leave with you. John stretches out those final moments of Jesus' life, and there's so many chapters. And here we are. The night of the foot washing and all the rest, he's giving his final appeals to his disciples and teachings to his disciples, and he says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. John 16, he later said, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, because I've overcome the world. This is the gospel that we're to share. That this world is a scary place, but Jesus has overcome it. Praise the Lord. Amen. Second Timothy 1.7 For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Amen. December 7, 1941 On that day, Japan launched a surprise attack on the unexpecting forces of the United States in Hawaii and everyone was completely caught off guard. No American on earth could have imagined that any nation on earth could have done that kind of damage that was done to our forces that day. There were books written about it after by survivors. One entitled, At Dawn We Slept. Does that tell you anything? Can you imagine put yourself in that place. If you happen to be awake at that moment, can you imagine seeing the clouds of planes and the fear and the utter panic as the bombs started raiding down and the despair that you must have felt? The fear, much of the armed forces whose sole mission and mandate was to protect America's interests, was destroyed and burning in a moment. And nobody saw it coming. But there's a story of two men on that day. Kenneth. Taylor, I don't know which one he is, I'm sorry, he's 21 years old from Oklahoma. The other 23 year old, George Welsh from Delaware. Both had graduated from flight school, just, and both had been trained in the P 40 aircraft. The P 40 was at that time America's premier frontline fighter, and the squadron of these two men had been assigned to Wheeler Field in Honolulu, but just a few months before the attacks, they were transferred out a little ways. On the northeastern side of the island. And when they woke up one morning to the sounds of explosions and machine gun fire, they quickly ran to the window and they recognized instantly this was not a drill. This was not a bad dream. This was the real deal. They were under attack. And so they went to their closest airstrip. Sorry, I said northeastern. I think it's the northwestern part of the island and the Japanese were not aware of this old, tired airfield where there were just a few aircraft, so it was ignored by the Japanese. And so they made a mad dash for that airfield 10 minutes away for them, reaching 100 miles an hour in speed in their car, while planes were shooting at them as they traveled. They arrived at the airbase. They jumped into their P-40s, and they were informed that they did not have the 50-millimeter ammunition at their airfield, just the smaller 30-millimeter ammunition. But they fueled up, they got what they could of the 30 millimeter, and they took off. And almost instantly, these two men were swarmed by 183 aircraft. But these two men, with what they had, took them on. They went to work, and they fought, and they fought, and they fought. Now, I am shocked that they didn't get shot down. But rather, they ran out of ammo, they ran low on fuel, and by this time, the first wave of attacks had kind of slowed, and so they went and they actually landed on Wheeler, the runway strip, which had been bombed. That was one of the main points of attacks, it was filled with holes, it was burning, all the rest. And they are saying, We need more fuel and we need ammunition. We've landed here because you have the 50 millimeter ammo that we need. And that argument ensued. They say, We're not going to get it, it's over there in that building that's on fire. And they went back and forth and back and forth until finally they said something that convinced them. They went into a flaming building, brought back the ammunition, they fueled up their planes, and just then a superior officer came forward and he said, you're not going anywhere. What do you mean I'm not going anywhere? There's the only two planes. He says, there's too dangerous. There's too many bullets. There's too many explosions. You're going to be outnumbered. You're grounded. I command you, that's an order. And what's going through their minds now? I mean, here we've been trained to listen to our superior officers. But we've also been trained to defend our country. And at that same moment, the second wave of aircraft started coming over. Just the buzz. And they ran and got in their planes, their P-40s. And they took off. They couldn't go the normal route down the long end of the runway because the way they were coming, they would have just blasted them before they could get off the ground. And so they went a shorter way, and they're taking them right into the oncoming traffic of airplanes, if you will. And the eyewitness account was before the wheels actually came off the ground, their machine guns were firing. And again, for the second time, these two young men fought and fought and fought. And again, miraculously, I don't understand how, they survive. And they were later awarded this Medal of Honor, Victoria Medal of Honor, which I think is the second highest of heroism and so on. They took what they had, and they did what they could. And sometimes I wonder why there's not more starch in the army of God, than these two men exhibited. As we see our world under attack, and yes, there's risk. Was there risk for these two young men? Do you think it was more than 0.9%? But they said, no, this is what we've been trained to do. We have no other option. We can't sit here and do nothing. And friends, that should be the DNA of the Christian. Not to take thoughtless risk, but to take calculated risks for Christ and for the gospel. Because we have a bigger mission and mindset and picture of what's happening than the rest of society does. And if we won't tell them, who will? So it's December, so we're going to try and make this a Christmas sermon. Is that okay? Okay. I'm so thankful, here it goes, you tell me how it works out. I'm so thankful that when the sin pandemic broke out out in our little world, Jesus Christ did not shelter in place. I am so thankful that he did not decide to quarantine himself while we were lost down here. Aren't you thankful? No, instead he left the safety of his home And came to our sick world and actually risked eternal loss. Not the first death, the second death. That's the eternal loss. He risked it. He didn't send a virtual savior. He didn't drop a book from the sky. And while messages were given in advance of his coming, he felt it necessary to come in the flesh. It was a mission of self-surrender in which loss and risk was very real part of the game. Wouldn't you say? And if we think modern Christianity can succeed without the same dynamics, we have something to learn about the elemental principles of the gospel. And so Jesus exposes himself to the virus. And in fact, became the virus to save us. Why? Because there was no other way. Heaven took a terrible risk, my friends. Evidently, Jesus and the Godhead thought it was worth it. He viewed every member of the human race, you and me, as essential. And if he's our example, what about us? Is the Great Commission something that only applies when there's not a virus? Or are we as Christians called to fulfill our mission and our mandate through our security in Jesus Christ. Still might be a critic out there saying, well, pastor, I know what's going to happen. You're going to get sick. Friends, I probably will. I don't know about you, though, but I am not willing to not only be a virtual Christian because of the huge limits. Friends, if I die, so be it. But one thing I know for sure, if I get taken down, it will not be while I shelter in place. It will be while I'm doing work that I feel God has called me to do for such a time as this. One of you called me this this week and said, Pastor, I was there at Party Hospital. There's a guy we started talking. He had some questions, some religious questions. We were talking about the Sabbath. I gave him this answer and that answer. And by the time it was all done, he said, I want to meet your pastor. Opposite of whatever happens. Hey, would you, I don't know all the answers to your questions. I mean, he knew all the right answers. He said, you want to talk to my pastor? No, 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 I don't want to talk to your pastor. What, am I in trouble? This guy says, I want to meet with your pastor. Sure, no problem. I bet we can arrange it. I'll call him tonight, which he did. I went the next day. Said, hey, I heard you wanted to see me. How are you? I had to get special permission. I went into party hospital. I had to wear my mask. There's COVID in party. But I took a risk for the gospel. And I'm going to keep doing it until God tells me otherwise. And I realize that it's hard to change lanes. If you got on the bandwagon that the sky was falling, it's hard to say, I'm off that wagon, I'm getting onto a different one. And once you embrace the mindset that this disease is beyond control, except with the most extreme measures, it's hard to move into a different lane and say, you know, maybe this asymptomatic super spreader is more of a myth than a reality. Maybe we figured out how to deal with it and cope with it more than everybody wants us to believe. Maybe the entire world won't die of COVID. And maybe we're in a moment where we actually need to change what we're doing. And so I'm appealing to every pastor, every administrator, every parent, every teacher, every leader at this moment God's church is not to be idle on the sidelines. Friends, if God's church is not moving forward, we're moving backward. The idea of neutral or we'll just pause doesn't exist. Just like you can't pause your relationship with your wife and be gone for a year and think everything's going to be just fine when you come back. There's no middle ground. And so this time of year we remember his birth, Emmanuel. He took on the likeness of men. As a matter of fact, the target of Satan was the second Adam. He embodied a deeper dynamic of temptation and distress and suffering than any human being ever did. But he supplicated the throne in prayer just like you and I can. Those nights in the mountainside, those sleepless moments, those moments when he went hungry, those times when he was misunderstood and rejected, those were all functions of a life of risk. And when he went to the cross, all hell closed and pressed in as hard as they could. And today we totally take it for granted. Of course he won. Of course he overcame. That's all we've ever heard. But don't you think for a second that that was not the greatest calculated risk in the entire universe. He risked all. He put everything on the line to set you and I free. Because he saw us as essential. And so, may God help us by His grace to fulfill His mission to give the everlasting gospel, His mandate to make disciples of all people, knowing that He promises to be with us until the end of the age. May the Lord help us to be faithful in times of peace and in times of crisis until he comes. Dear Heavenly Father, as we have taken time this morning to see the incredible risk that the entire Godhead that Jesus took for us, Lord, may we see more clearly the path you marked out for us, that we may take this message that we may fulfill our mission and mandate from you in the security of Jesus Christ for your honor and glory. is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org